I wanted to start a little bit just by asking about your early life. What did you come from a political family and when did this political consciousness start for you? Yes, I did come from a political family. So, okay, I'll try and say this quite quickly because obviously it's a long story. My mother came from a very middle-class um, business family. They were, her father's family were um, dealers in fancy goods. They bought and sold things, you know. They, I remember even when I, was, when I was very, very young, going to my grandfather's warehouse. His name was Robert White. He was an old soldier, interestingly enough. Um, had to leave the army. He didn't want to. He wanted to be a career soldier. Started off in the Boer War as a private soldier in a, in an, in a British regiment called the Gordon Highlanders. And then blah, 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 and fought through the First World War um, in a, a London Scottish regiment. Wanted to stay in the army. Both his brothers were killed in a swimming accident on the River Wharf, the Wharf in Yorkshire. And he had to go and take over the family firm, which he regretted for the rest of his life. Um, anyway, so that, that's my mother's background. So she was sent off. She had uh, an old a brother, one older sister, and two younger sisters. She was sent off to boarding school age, you know, eight or nine or whenever they would send kids off to girls' schools. And, this. and she led a very kind of sheltered life in that kind of way until she trained as a teacher in the 30s. And uh, she did her teacher training in the in the middle of the 1930s, up north in England in a school in a town called Bradford. And I, I remember her telling me what, how her eyes were opened to the fact that in the 1930s in England, there was child labor. And, and also there was extreme poverty once you moved out of the little suburb or wherever it might be that, well, we didn't have suburbs in those days. You know, suburbs were a post-war dream. Let's build a little town out somewhere. So um, there she is teaching in Bradford. It's freezing cold, hard winters up there and children are walking miles to school through the snow with no shoes or socks on. And she was, what? And a bell went off and she determined that she had to do something about it. And uh, before you could say knife, um, the war overtook everybody. But mind you, before the war, she went on a student exchange before that to the United States of America and spent a whole summer partly in Akron in Ohio and partly in Texas at a Girl Scout camp, would you believe? And, and so she absorbed something of what that, what, what being in America was like. So she had a, she had very strong views about that. And a lot of that rubbed off on me, I think. Anyway, cut long story short, she served tea through the Blitz in, in London, had joined the Communist Party after selling the daily worker on street corners a bit, blah, 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 and stayed in the Communist Party as a carrying card member until 1956, when all members of the British Communist Party 
uh, with a conscience and a heart and a soul, accepted the fact that there was something deeply wrong with Stalin and that the dreams of Lenin and, and Trotsky in their following of the Marxist, you know, theology, if you like, um, that Stalin had fucked it all up and that after the invasion of Hungary, most British communists said, no, we can't, we cannot, we, no, we can't. Because the British Communist Party refused to condemn the invasion of Budapest in 1956. And a lot of people left at that point. So, our, well, in 1956, I was already 13 years old. So I was very uh, uh, clear about what was going on. But from then on, our front room became a Labour Party committee room. And to, for the rest of the time, which wasn't very long, I stayed in, in Cambridge then. There were, it was constantly, you know, uh, Labour Party committee meetings. And, and when I was very young, my, I have an elder brother, two years older than me. My mother would take my brother and I to all the political meetings that she went to in the evenings, rather than leave us at home with the babysitting. So, so I, I'm steeped in sitting on wooden floors in friends' meeting houses in Cambridge, in the Quaker friends' meeting house in Cambridge, watching grainy black and white films of the people's heroic struggle in the 1948 march, you know, with Mao. So it's, it's filled with Chinese heroes in K-pop suits fighting the Japanese and the puppet government and so forth. So, so um, well, you can hear it. it. It could go on bubbling out of me for another hour, but... Yeah. So, so, so and, then, and then, of course, uh, you know, when I was even younger than that and the war had ended, there, were, there was inevitably, because of who my mother was, there were books to find in the bottom drawer that were filled with pictures of Belson being liberated and, you know, along, they, and they lay alongside, um, it was a treasure trove, that bottom drawer. There were horror comics from America because my mother ran a campaign in England to stop the import of these disgusting comics that were coming over from the United States. <laughs> <laughs> she was a fucking firebrand fan, she really was. Yeah. And um, anyway, I, I nearly said, don't get me started, but you did get me started. But but yeah, that's right. So by the time I was 15, I was chairman of the Young Socialists in Cambridge, not for long, because really I didn't give a fuck and I, and I didn't have the stamina either. I hate committee meetings. <laughs> you know, I don't like talking to people who like the sound of their own voices like I do. I prefer to be on, the, you know, to have <laughs> the stage to my fucking self. You know, I mean, I'm 77 now, so I get, nothing can hurt me anymore. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. But, yeah, how people ever get through politics, this is one of the things that I'm really deeply concerned about now, you know. How can... How can a political party, because I do the idea of fundamental change without an organization and a party, you know, even when Che's riding around the fucking Andes on his motorcycle and working in the leper colony or what, there's always a party behind it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and, and there's the, those uniting forces of, of the idea that labor being something that people own rather than something the bosses own is always is always central to it all. So so how do out of the ashes of the death of neoliberal capitalism, 
can the phoenix of brotherhood and love and cooperation and sharing vaccines and crazy ideas like that grow into something that can put its arms around us all and say, hey, brother, I've got you, you know? Did At that early time in your life, Roger, you said you became a little uninterested with politics. So by the time it's the early 1960s, what, what are you sort of reading, listening to? What are you thinking? Your mom's politically active. You're in this political atmosphere, but you're now a yeah. teenager and you're, you're getting older. You're about to become an adult. Obviously, you're getting interested in music and art. <laughs> No, I wasn't about to become an adult. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, I'm, I'm still working on that. Actually, I think I may have become an adult <laughs> fairly recently. You know, I made a huge step when I ended my fourth marriage. And it shows how, lit, how much I was never an adult, was that's the first marriage I ever ended. So there's something now we, we're getting into the whole oh my god, he's not just misanthropic, he's a fucking misogynist. Don't no. start talking about gender pronouns, whatever you do. You're, you're not gonna get in trouble on this program for that. <laughs> anyway. And so anyway, yeah, no, I wasn't I all I wanted to do was win the football tools pulls. You know, and if you did, you could, the, the biggest payout ever when I was a kid was £40,000. And and in those days, um, there was a huge return on invested capital. So I thought, hang on, 40 grand, if I invested that, I could make 10%. That's four grand a year. That's 80 quid a week. I can live like a fucking king on 80 quid a week. You know, it seemed like there were, but you can't rely on the lottery because obviously the lottery is fixed like any casino it has rules to make certain that no nobody wins except the people who run the lottery and or the casino or the whatever it is it's you know of course the bait that they dangle in front of you hoping that you'll take the hook um is that one in five trillion people who actually fucking wins something yeah. so but that's what I that's what, that's what I wanted. I'm sure that's why I got started trying to learn to play the guitar. And I thought this is the only the only alternative to a kid like me for either win the football tools or become a rock star. What else can you do? I'm not tall enough to be a basketball player. And anyway, we never had basketball in England. <laughs> we had netball, and it's for girls. Nobody would dream of playing a stupid game, flipping a ball into a fucking hoop. <laughs> that's nice for girls. <laughs> well, hey, Roger, what were you listening to at the time? Who, who were like your go-to, like what you were listening to at that time? Thelonious Monk, you know, Johnny Hodges, almost any jazz. Or, you know, we listened. I used to go, when I was sort of 50, oh shit, put my elbow on the keyboard. When I was like, 15 say i used to shin down the drain pipe because my mother was a bit of a martinet and she thought that because i was going to school i ought to get a night's sleep and i didn't i thought i should be furthering my education in one way or another so i used to climb down the drain pipe and go around to my mate seamus o'connell's house who who lived with a batty mother who i thought was a witch for most of my young life <laughs> She wasn't. She was fucking great. She used to stay up all night and there would be 
my mate Willer and me and Seamus mainly. And then there was Paul Sherry and there were like four of us really. And we would go and she would cook us boiled potatoes and fry sausages. And we'd sit there all night listening to mainly jazz, but also some pop music. And so, you know, that was, I was in that room in, in, in Mrs. O'Connell's kitchen that I first heard um, um, Georgia on my mind, you know. Um, it just shows how batty I am that um, Ray Charles. Ray Charles, see, I forgot Ray Charles's name there, which is kind of cool that you can do that. And it comes back that fast. <laughs> You know, the Rolodex of memory, I've found, because names go. Names are the first thing that go. But that if you sit and wait, you can't in the middle of having a conversation with somebody on the telly. <laughs> so that, luckily, Ray Charles is a pretty easy one, so it flipped back in. But um, I remember thinking, wow, having thinking... Maybe I could write music even then, you know. Imagine writing a song like this that can move, that has the power to move somebody as much as this experience is moving me. Of course, at the time, I thought Ray Charles had written the song. I'd never heard of Hoagie Hill Michael. I didn't know anything about, you know, the history of songwriting, I think. But I, but I, but I remember that. And we would listen to music all night long. And, and occasionally take Dexedrine, which was the a sort of forerunner of Benzedrine. What, what were you, so when did you first know that you had written something that had moved large parts of the world? When did that, when, when did that hit you? Many, 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 maybe 40 years ago or something like that, 50 years ago, maybe I got a letter and I'm, I can feel myself getting over emotional. And it was a letter from the parents of some kid, some young, young woman and who got cancer and died when she was 16 years old or, or something like that, had leukemia or something and died. And they wrote me a letter saying that in the month leading up to her death, she kept listening to set the controls for the heart of the sun over and over and over again. And they don't know why, but that it provided her with solace or something. And I'm I still, even, even telling you that now, you can see it's like, it's hard for me to control the emotions that come up. Um, you know, that, 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 I mean, if you like, I, I think I, Part of the reason that I'm so ferociously anti-war and anti-capitalism, anti all the malign influences on the possibility for human beings to make the most of the walk that we all take from the cradle to the grave. Um, is, is because that is what all this political involvement is about. That's all it's about. It's about providing the opportunity for individual human beings, possibly that could drift off into animals as well. I don't know, maybe not trees, you know, you know. <laughs> possibly not protoplasm, but 
certainly human beings and the, how cool it would be if if every human being introduced onto this fertile and incredibly beautiful and extraordinarily organized in terms of um, the physics of it all planet that is our home that is finite and is going to disappear we're not sure when but we know that it's not, not it doesn't last for we know enough about the universe now to know that nothing is forever everything goes back to carbon or whatever it goes back to at some point and this planet well it's going to get cold or get hot or explode or disappear or the star will go boom or whatever with no idea the sun um because our lifespans are so short without getting metaphysical about anything so it breaks my fucking heart to think of all my brothers and sisters all over the world who never have the opportunity that i do that i have carved out for myself to walk my path with love and grace as far as i possibly can uh, uh, because you need a you need a freedom from the basic wants and needs and also not to get sent to fucking Iraq to get blown to pieces or my father to have to go to Italy and get killed or whatever so it's all of that fussing and fighting you know that our dead friend John Lennon talks about not that I'm setting him up as any great you know guru or anything but nevertheless encapsulated in some of what he espoused and was trying to suggest in Imagine and a few of the other pieces work he did is all about the same thing it's all it's about it's about whether we can channel our love for each other into providing each other with the opportunity to walk with love and grace down whatever path we choose it's a shame to me that even for myself um I feel like it took war for that to happen for me. You know, I grew up in this industrialized, the city in which I'm located looks like the cover of the animals record. I mean, it's an industrialized smokestacks, coal-fired power plant, maximum security prison with prisoners sitting on death row. We've got houses falling apart. You could buy a house where we live, Roger, for thirty, forty thousand um, dollars Where are you, Detroit or somewhere? Where are you? I'm in Michigan City, Indiana which is about 50 miles to the east of Chicago in this industrialized mm -hmm. belt of what used to be steel mills lining right. the south shore of Lake Michigan. Right. And I didn't want to go into the mills. I hated school. I hated every second of sitting in those fucking chairs and having to do the work and having someone tell me what to do when the bells ring. I hated every second of it. All yeah. I wanted to do was play sports and chase women around. That was all I cared yeah. about, K through 12. That's healthy. And my... <laughs> Well, I mean, go on, yeah. No, I was going to say, you know, I, but I come from a family of people who had served in the military. My grandfather uh, was actually in the Battle of Anzio uh, with the 3rd Infantry uh, Regiment. 3rd um, Infantry Division with the Army 7th Infantry Regiment. He got two Purple Hearts. He was out of Anzio in May uh, 1944. He had gotten shot once, and he had gotten shrapnel all over his back. He never talked about the war, never said a word about it. I never heard him say anything about it. My father uh, was in the army during Vietnam, but wasn't sent to Vietnam. He got a high or a low uh, lottery ticket, so he ended up in Germany, skiing on the slopes while his friends were getting blown up for no purpose. When I told him I was joining the Marine Corps, he told me, "Are you fucking nuts? 
He said, do you want to get sent to another bullshit war like Vietnam? Now, of course, I was 17. Roger, I knew better than him. Um, and I joined anyway. But then I think of everything that happened since then. And I think to myself, it's this weird contradiction where the most traumatic, fucked up thing that ever happened in my life also was the sort of foundational period where I was changing my perspective on everything. You know, where, what should I go? What's it all about? Is it about making money and having the two-car garage? It, none of that made sense. I mean, I came back a very disjointed human being from that war, but I knew one thing, and that was what you were getting to, which is that I never wanted anyone to suffer through the same things that we suffered through, and even more importantly for me, I felt like I had a responsibility to speak on behalf of the Iraqi people uh, for what we had done to them, uh, for the death and destruction that we caused, because still here, almost 20 years later, uh, the Iraqi people, the Afghan people, the Syrian people, the Palestinian people, the Libyan people, nobody ever hears from them. You know, at the, at the best we get in the media in the United States is maybe an anti-war voice, uh, but not too often. So I felt that as sort of a responsibility in war in my adult life has really shaped everything since I've been 18 years old. And it, you know, on top of that, we have never ending wars. So we live in this state of perpetual war. Um, and I, I was thinking about that before speaking with you, because I'm thinking about yourself growing up in the shadow of World War II and in a landscape that I don't think a lot of Americans can uh, understand, because we, did, we weren't devastated in the same way that Europe was devastated after World War II. Um, but I, I was sort of wondering how much that, obviously, war plays a central role in, in a lot of your work and a lot of your, your activism today. But, you know, growing up in the shadow of World War II, the death of your father, and then also just that landscape of people who have lived through that. I mean, it wasn't just the soldiers. It was, it was everybody, at least where you come from. Well, yeah, it was. I mean, I don't know what you want me to say about that. Yeah, I grew up in England, you know, in the aftermath of the of the Second World War. I didn't grow up in London, so I, I wasn't surrounded by bombed out buildings. So it, it wasn't, at least architecturally uh, and geographically, it wasn't as devastating as it must be now to be in fucking Detroit, which is just as devastated as, you know, or where you are. Which is just as, but it, you're, with there, it's been devastated by, you know, the, by the, not spineless, but by the, by the chilling grasp of neoliberal capitalism, which just doesn't give a fuck about people at all, not even a shred. You know, it's funny you were talking. You said so. Um, I think to myself. You said, and I think to myself. You said that, and I thought to myself or something, and immediately I heard Louis Armstrong. It's weird, isn't it? I love triggers like, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. <laughs> you know, and you go, and you go, well, yeah, but it, yeah, but it's, yeah, but wouldn't that be fucking cool? Because it is. What a wonderful, wonderful, amazing, amazing world it is. And when you take a child and you sit them down with a praying mantis and go, look at that. Just watch it for a minute and just wow, isn't that incredible? Look at the way it's, things work. And it, you know, it's, it really is quite, and children are open to that. And But you can destroy them so quick because they're vulnerable and they, and, and in our advanced, certainly in, well, all over the world, in fact, they because. The world is divided into masters and slaves. There's about eight masters 
and like 350 million slaves. And so, and most of the slaves never get a chance. They never get a quiet few seconds to sit and go, whoa, hold on a minute. What do I want? What do I want? What do I want? You know, they're like bombs are going off. And so they dive into the Mediterranean and drown because they have no, there's no recourse for them. They can't do anything else. And you know why you've been there. I don't have to preach to you. We know why the, the bombs are going off because rich fuckers are trying to steal everything yep. that's under the ground. That's all. It's really, really, really simple. But they also control the media. They control all the mainstream media. They control all the TV. They control all the newspapers. They control, except little pockets like you and maybe me or my friend BJ Prashad in the, you know, whatever, or, you know, or the People's Dispatch or the Grey Zone or they're, they're all over the world. There are enclaves of sedition which is what it is, but they are doing everything that they can slowly, but inexorably to shut them all down. So they don't exist. So we have to cling to Orwell and Huxley and we must make our children read 1984 and A Brave New World and whatever, because one's written in 1929 and the other's written in 1948, but they contain a perfect vision of our lives of what we live in it's part brave new world and part 1984 but um but there's no beautiful life in there no i, I felt like you were channeling some uh neil postman his but his book of course your your album yeah amused to death but also yeah. you know amusing ourselves to death that book when i first read it i thought oh man and i came to it late of course it was published in 1984 the same year i was born yeah and i came to this book after the marine corps and i thought oh everybody talks about orwell maybe i need to read this guy huxley so i started yeah. reading huxley but you know postman makes that point that we need to examine both and that in the world today I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's more? Do you think it's a combination of the two worlds, the '84 world, the Brave New yeah. World? Yeah, I love the fact that Huxley wrote to Orwell because, yeah, I read his book. It's not bad, you know. But and explain to him how Orwell was sort of partly right, but not nearly as right as I am. Huxley. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's much more insidious than the case that you state. However, so you can go backwards and forwards between the two, but when you go back. If you go to the beginning of of 1984, I think, the, but the beginning of it really, um, I'm trying to remember what the first page of 1984 is, and I can't just I can remember the last page always, because the last page is when he's walking away and he's about to get the bullet, or we think in the back of the head, and he suddenly realizes that he's happy, the fight is over, he loves Big Brother. So Winston Smith has made his journey and they've won. He's finally accepted the propaganda and that everything's all right. But the stuff at the beginning about Oceania and Europeania and whatever, and the fact that they're always fighting and they have to pick one who's the enemy out of the three or four. It's just, I mean, it's so what's happening now, all this nonsense about China or Russia or whoever it is that, and yet we don't rise up as a as a mass of people and go, oh, do you think we're stupid? 
because we know the answer. Yeah, they do. Yeah. yeah. And they're fucking right. We are. Yeah. Sadly. And we're incredibly badly educated. Ne- never mind not reading Huxley or or um, or Orwell. None of us read anything, A. And B, we say, we say well, where is Iran? I don't fucking know. Yeah. Like 65% or something of Americans don't know where England is. I'm sorry to get all English. Yeah. <laughs> they have a fucking idea what the, what the world looks like. Yeah. Because they don't get taught anything because there is no education system in the United States. Because it's extremely important to them that there isn't because they don't want anyone to know anything or have the capacity to think or reason or make decisions or figure stuff out to decide what to do. They just want you to react. Oh, I can get a 32 ounce bottle of Pepsi for a dollar and fucking kill myself. Hey kids, get diabetes too before you're fucking 14 years old and drop dead. Yeah. It's good for Coca-Cola. Plus Coca-Cola are the biggest makers of plastic there's ever been and whatever. And they're everything in the ocean is going to be dead in a few years and because they... you're drinking Coca-Cola. And they go, what's he talking about? Yeah. Nothing wrong with Coke. Yeah. It's an institution. Same company that's funding right-wing death squads around the world. Yeah. They, you're still pissed off, it seems to me. I, I'm, I've been pissed off, perpetually pissed. I've been trying to balance an anger with a sense of love. Because for me, the anger comes from love. So, yeah. like, I love people. I love human beings. I love creativity. I love the world. I do not want to see people get harmed. Uh, abused, tortured, killed for no reason. And because of that, like, I'm still fired up about things. But sometimes in the United States, it seems like everybody's sort of on this, like, medicated level of, like, eh, fuck, it's like everybody's on Xanax all day, every day. You know, where it's just, like, one of the reasons we opened the community center was to get people engaged, you know, get them off of these fucking things. Everybody's yeah. this all day or sitting in front of the box. And now instead of the box being a TV, it's this thing. You know, yeah. people scrolling and only interacting with each other through two-dimensional mediums. That's not healthy. I mean, one of the reasons why we opened the space was to get people educated, thinking, organized around these issues. Um, because yeah. if people don't know where Iran is on a map, how in the hell can we expect them to organize against a potential war in Iran? Yeah. But we have to combine the cultural. I mean, one of the questions I had for you is, you know, we're having art installations at the space, film screenings, guest lectures, but we also have social events. You know, we'll have parties and barbecues and get together to try and build that kind of community. Um, I was going to ask you, culturally, how do you, how do you see things changing now? Uh, you, you were involved and started a cultural project uh, at a time, you know, when the war in Vietnam was raging, uh, counterculture movement was raging. Uh, what, what do you see as like the changes over these decades now? I mean, there's still interesting cultural things happening today, but they're happening in a much different way, it seems to me, than, than they were, say, 40 years ago. Wow. I, I don't know, man. I'm not sure I'm the right person to be, to be asking that question. You know, I, I find that because we, have, we only have a certain number of minutes in every day, too, and, and what we... Uh, apply ourselves to and what we allow into our world 
or a bubble is fundamentally important, I think, to what happens to us. So the, the anal analyzing thing about, I find overwhelming. So a lot of the time I try and s stay away from it, you know. So there's for, so it, so it's a bit like you know all the old um, um, bullshit, vaguely not metaphysical but sociological, anthropological notions about the wise old Indian and the two wolves. Well, this wolf food, blah blah blah. blah. Yeah. Which one do you feed? You know. Well, okay, it's very homespun. It's not true. It's got nothing to do with you know the Cheyenne or wherever who it's supposed to come from. And they and most Native Americans absolutely disavow it as pretending to be part of culture, their cultural. But all that aside, I only put that in because I'm involved a little bit in some work with Native Americans here in my backyard. So, but um, what am I trying to say? I, I see, though, a parallel that I, I notice. Well, I don't notice it all the time. I'm not aware of it most of the time. But talking to you now, I need to bring this up and say, I can't really think about the broad issue. and Because I'm concentrating on this. We have empathy in us. We're born with it. All right. But they are trying to fill us with, fuck them. Like you said, get the two-car garage. Yeah, but I feel, I'm worried about that. Fuck him, get the two-car garage. And, you know, yeah, but yeah, but I have this feeling in me that I get a bit choked up when I see that kid on that beach in Turkey, you know, Elan, not Elan, he's not called Elan, but Alan, I think he was called. And, and you, you, you don't worry about that. Listen, what you should be worrying about is blah, 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 blah. So there is, there is that, they are, we are presented every day with how much energy do we use to nurture our little piece of empathy? Because that's what is going to bring us joy in our lives. You building your community centre or inviting people in, you doing the work that you do is what brings you Vincent, joy, that's what brings joy to your life, is that. That is the kernel, that is the nugget, that is the precious stone that we all carry within us, in our hearts. And all this fucking bullshit about, you know, about all of this whole thing that's been constructed in the United States of America, the United States of America is the shining city on the hill of all that fucking shit. It's a huge pile of shiny shit. And so that's the reason that people talk about the United States all the time is, be is because of that. And so it's hugely important because of that. And when you're in Pittsburgh and the steel mills are going and everybody's pumping out and everybody's making a, they're not making a fortune. They're not going to go and retire in the sun, but they're making a living and they're whatever. Um, it may feel as if it's faintly all right, but when you get, when with the perspective of looking back on the last 60 years at it, you go, well, hang on, it wasn't all right. It was just, they were using you in that location for those few minutes. Now they're using the fucking Chinese right. or whoever it is who's working for 50 cents an hour, yeah. building the shit that makes them multi-billionaires. Yeah. Or a fucking robot now.
Or robots, yeah, or robots. Robots would be all very well if what the robots were there for was to provide more time for you to touch your capacity for empathy with others and to explore your um, talents and your ability to be creative and loving and nurturing and to have a family and to do all of those things that human beings really get a lot out of. Yeah. And a lot of it is work. You know, I've, I've, I remember once talking to my mate Willer and going, if I hadn't been able to do, I'm all, if people say, if you could, if you didn't, hadn't done what you did, what would you like to do? Well, obviously, you know, Captain England at cricket and make a double century against the Australians or whatever that fantasy is. So, but apart from that, I can sort of imagine what it must be like if you're a cabinet maker. Pick up your plane. Here's the piece of wood. And at the end of the day, or at the end of three weeks, or however long it fucking takes, you stand back and there's a chair that you made with your hands. And you look at it and you go, wow, that's kind of cool. Maybe I might have. But it's there, you know, and it's something that you can touch and feel and the smell of the wood shavings. I can imagine. I can imagine having lived a life of honest labor at some human, but of course all that's slowly but surely that's being removed from people. There are, there are, nobody wants a cobbler or anybody. I mean, I'm not saying that I wanted to be a cobbler, but you can imagine the pride and the joy of using your hands and your eyes and your whatever to make something. What can, what, but what can we make? What you're doing, you are a cobbler. You are making the shoes that we need to walk around and say hello to each other to get us away from the fucking iPhones. Yeah. How about, I was going to ask you, uh, your relation to technology. I know I've heard you in the past say you don't have a TV. Sergio and I don't have a TV in the space at all, so we, there's no TV around here. But what do, you, what do you generally like? Do you interact with a lot of this new technology or are you just like, look, I don't have time for it. It's too much. No, I don't interact with the new technology, but I do interact with the older technology. I do have a TV. I watch every single Arsenal game, soccer game, wherever I am in the world, if I can. I'm yeah. a fan. I'm a sports fan. Yeah. I admit it. I don't see anything wrong with it. No, God, I, no. I kind of, when you look back at the history of ancient Greece and whatever and the development of the, of the Olympics originally and putting the shot and throwing the discus and whatever. And then after that, they're, they're all individual games because by and large, war games were individuals, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, it was a much better idea to have a champion who went for another champion, and that was the end of it, rather than, hey, let's kill 5,000 people. No, why not just kill one? Yeah. If we, if that's, if we can, if, if we can make that the definitive end of the argument, be much better not to kill one, but it, you know, one is better than thousands. Yeah. But of course, we know, you know, you've been, you know, you, after your experience in Iraq and looking into it, we know that your awful experience, I know, I know a lot of veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. I've worked with quite a few of them. And, but um, we all absolutely know that it was only for money. It was nothing to do with anything but money. It's a way of making rich people richer. 
Smedley Butler said this in 19-fucking-20 or whenever it yep. was. Yep. You know, and he only fought in, in those colonial wars around supporting American agriculture yep. in Central America. And he, and he figured it out. And he was, I believe he was the most decorated soldier ever in the whole history of the US Army or something. Certainly that's the story that goes around. But if you read his pamphlet, he figured it out. He went, whoa, hold on a minute. I figured it out. This is only about money. Yeah. War is a racket. War is, is a racket. Is the name exactly. of the, the pamphlet. I know, yeah. And and how many of the vets that you talk to, Roger, do they feel similarly? Are you only talking to, say, anti-war vets, no. or are you talking to all kinds of veterans? You know, so, no, all, all kinds. Some of them do, some of them don't. Well, I did. I say I've worked with a lot. I haven't worked with all that many, but I've worked with quite a few outside this. But I at one point, um, I went to um, Walter Reed uh, with my friend uh, G. Smith, George Edward, and... Um, together with a guy who was working there, helping um, vets to rehabilitate through learning and playing musical instruments and whatever, I, we put I put together a band of guys from Walter Reed, and we did some shows together. Oh wow! And um, they were called um, the shows were called Stand Up for Heroes. And they were they happened every year at the Beacon Theatre in New York for a number of years. And the and the um foundation, Bob and I've forgotten his wife's name, but it'll come back to me. Um they put these shows on every year and it was always um um Bruce Springsteen was a bit of a linchpin. He was sort of the star of the thing, but it, because it's called Stand Up For Hero, so it was mainly comics. And then he would come on, sing a song, auction his guitar, they'd make a few grand for um, veterans, for one of the, you know, uh, one of the warrior things. What What's the main warrior? Wounded warriors. Wounded warriors, mainly for, for wounded warriors. And then they'd all go home and they, and they at some point, Wood, uh, Woodruff, Bob, and well, I remember her name too, but his name's Woodrow. And they um, they came to me and they said, would you come and play at one of them? We know you're interested in what veterans affairs and blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh. I said, I'm, uh, maybe. And then, so they said, well, we've got a thing at the National History Museum. Will you come and talk to some of them? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So I did, and I spoke to these guys. The first guy I spoke to, He's become a friend. His name is Dom. Well, it's Dominguez, Juan Dominguez, Corporal Juan Dominguez, Marine, right? So I'm at this thing and I'm drinking my glass of white wine or whatever, wandering around, and there's a ton of guys there in dress blues and whatever. And there's this guy with no fucking arms. Oh, no, he's got one arm and no legs, sitting in a chair sort of and sitting in a wheelchair. And I thought, I'll go and talk to him. So I did. And we started talking. And um, after a bit of music, he had no idea who I was, but it finally it dawned on him. It dawned on him. He thought, fuck me, no, it can't be. And then he, so at one point, and, and he was going, I play the guitar, he's like this. And he's got no fucking legs. And he goes, yeah, I play the guitar. And I, and I kind of looked at him and went, really? <laughs> you know, that's, I'd like to see that. Yeah. And he went, well, not anymore, actually. 
you know, I used to play the guitar a lot. And I went, yeah, okay, that's more like it. And then he went, now I play the drums. <laughs> John, if you're fucking watching this, brother, I'm telling our story. And and he does. And he's fucking good too. And he's he's still playing with the with several of these guys, Tim Connolly and um as as you as you can tell, I'm really, really bad with with names, I could rattle off all their names. Um, they're living in a house together now. They got out of Walter Reed and then blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so we did a couple of shows in the Beacon. Oh, no, they they came back to us and I said, well, I don't feel good about putting a band together, or my band, or standing up with my band and going, oh, look at me, aren't I great? And here's a check. I said, well, I've got an idea if you'll back me. I want to go to Walter Reed with this bloke I've met is from. And I want to put a band together there and we will play for you. I'll just be one of that band. So they put it before the board and they went, you're fucking insane. And I went, yeah. And they went, okay. And we did it. And it, I'm, I sort of choked up talking about it because you can imagine what it was. It was, it was amazing. And we did three years of it. And do you know why it stopped? Why we didn't do a fourth one? Why is that? Steve fucking Cohen. You cunt. Ah, uh, really? Billionaire. He was on the board and um, of Stand Up For Heroes. And the fourth year we went to do it, he said, you've got to get rid of Roger Waters. He's an anti-Semite. And if you don't get rid of him, you'll never see another single shilling from anybody of our faith coming into your charity. What? Unfucking believable. So when they when they finally when I found out about this, I went, "What? Are you serious?" Yeah, they're serious. I said, "Well, it puts them in a difficult situation. That's millions and millions of dollars a year, right? Because they're very, very generous." So anyway, so I said, well, what about the men? The men, I don't have to do it. The, no, no, the, they, they've thought about it. They will talk about you. And everybody will say, well, where's Roger? He, he, he's, he's the guy who put this band together. Where's he? And then it'll come out and then people will start to ask awkward questions. So no, the band can't play either. So what I did was that year because the things were every november and that year i said to them we're not doing it this year but i'm coming down at christmas we'll have a christmas party because i've got an idea and so i booked a studio where we used to rehearse down there near or net 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 very near walter reed in washington dc and we spent the whole day in this studio just playing which was great. And then everybody, we all went out to dinner together and had this fucking great meal in, in a nice restaurant. And everybody got completely drunk, obviously, and full. And it was beautiful. And I told them the story and I said, here's my plan. And if you want to do it, we'll do it. I said, next year, because we're not going to be allowed to do it. They, they don't want to know anymore. I said, we'll do our own. And we'll do it in Washington, D.C., because I don't want to tread on Stand Up For Heroes toes, and that's in New York, whatever they do. But I'd like to do a gig with you guys in Washington, D.C. We'll find a hall, we'll put it on ourselves, 
but we aren't there won't be any flags there won't be a single american flag there there won't be any uniforms none of that and i want to call it music heels and if you want to do that i will organize it and we'll do it together and they did and we did it we did it in dc in 2016 16 i think or 15 anyway at, at the uh, daughters of the Re revolution hall three and a half thousand people turned up and watched it and uh, tom morello came and did it with us and so oh, yeah. did um who else came um billy corgan came and sang wish you were here which was great and cheryl crow recorded something but mainly it was just just me and the band and i was and george edward and a guy called uh jeff fucking hell hammond player i've forgotten his name now but and and since then i've kept in touch with them but i've been so busy <laughs> yeah. that i haven't i haven't done any more gigs with them i was going to ask you do you two things do you feel that this is a responsibility at this point i mean do you feel because you have this voice because you have a platform that you have a responsibility to speak out about these issues absolutely absolutely and that's why and because i'm get you know because i'm old i'm 77 i'm not old i'm young but i'm a youngish 77 anyway but because i sometimes have to ask my, myself the question do i reduce my platform and and do i um um reduce my power in the conversation if i get too loud or if i use cuss words or if i make a mistake or if i'm not politically correct and things and so i've i've thought about that quite a lot over the last few years and i've decided in the end i don't give a shit and that I will, Steve Cohen, I will call a cunt a cunt because you are, all right? So, and, and, and if, <laughs> if we lose the war, I'm sorry, man, you know, I'm really, but I feel that I can't try and be all things to all men and I, I can't be political about, I can't be, I can't go, well, what happens if I did? I've seen so many people with, great aspirations founder on the rocks of wanting to get on politically in some way you yeah. know and that you suddenly you suddenly find you you went to the fucking white house and had lunch with george fucking bush yep. what yeah you know bruce or whoever you might be maybe not but you probably went with obama yep. he's fucking killing people all over the world with his drones Yes. You go sit down in the White House garden and make nicey with a cup of tea. No. Do you lose respect for people for stuff like that, Roger? Uh, well, no, you... I, try, I try to be, you know, calm. no, because if people do anything that's positive or good or whatever, I, I, I would try to, no, because I could be wrong. It might be great that you go and sit and have tea with the bomber. Maybe some good came of it. How would I know? Well, who am I to be judgmental? It's the way I saw it. I tell you what I don't do anymore is when my activist friends say, oh, and Roger, could you go and ask, you know, and I'm naming no names, no names, no Petro. The names I could rattle off of my fucking tongue of all those people who make nice and 
oh, you know, I really believe in human rights and I play this great music and we have this great band. And you go, oi, I need your help. Come and stand up and be counted on this issue. Oh, well, don't you think that and you suddenly <laughs> discover that one of them's married to a fucking Israeli and has an apartment in Tel Aviv or whatever it might be. It doesn't really matter what it is. Yeah. Or their uncle builds electric chairs. And so although they're against the death penalty, right. <laughs> you know, um, or whatever. I mean, that's yeah, a dark yeah. example, obviously. But, yeah. But actually, you know what it is mainly? They're shit fucking scared that whatever the lobby is will come out and slit their throats and hang them on the hedge like they're trying to do to Assange and like they've tried to do to me. I just wanted to ask you about yourself. I was in Australia in 2013. We had a bunch of events for Assange. We were standing up at the time with the WikiLeaks party uh, and with a bunch of grassroots activists in Australia, really radical, good folks. But for yourself, does it have an impact like, Personally, you I mean, it seems like you don't give a shit if they call you an anti-Semite or whatever they're going to whatever insult they're going to throw your way. But also, it doesn't seem like your fans give a shit like your your concerts, your tours are fucking packed people. I mean, I know people who are still talking about the upcoming tour that you're going to do, that this is not a drill. It doesn't seem like it has any impact on the amount of people. Yeah, But you have to remember. Do people call you Vincent? Vinny. Vince Vinny. or Vincent, yeah, depending. I'll call you Vinny, if I may. Yes, you can. All the Vincents I know are called Vinny, in my experience. But, okay, so what we have to remember is that you can fit my fans on the head of a fucking matchstick. We're tiny. It's a tiny number of people. It might be a million people the world over or something like that. You know, who even heard of me? It's a tiny number of people. And, yeah, they even so... So many fucking morons, or enough morons, get through the cracks who came to the Us and Them show and got upset because I was attacking Donald Trump. And you go, what the fuck's wrong with you? Why did you come? You know, Because they don't get it. Because they have bought all the Pink Floyd propaganda. That this is all about la-di-da-di-da and and taking taking LSD and and you know outer space and whatever and and if you can get them like that and sit them in a chair and slap them and go no it's not it's nothing to do with any of that shit dopey haven't you ever <laughs> fucking listened to any of it and, and they haven't oh. do you need to take that Roger no I don't it's from a friend of mine though I just need to look at it and see what he actually said this is a friend of mine, who, who a, a golfer, who's got really, really bad cancer at the moment, and so he's he's going through terrible, terrible, terrible times, and um, that's that's him texting me because I I send him texts all the time that are as crazy and irreverent and funny and ignoring is. Uh, illness as much as possible and so that when he responds that's a, it's a big moment because he, he has very little strength I know I'm laughing but I'm, I'm not really but anyway it doesn't matter um, what were we talking about something interesting before Dewey interrupted us no it's okay 
It's okay. You were just complaining about how people see like the Pink Floyd as like, oh, you oh, yeah, take yeah. drugs and you're out in space and it has nothing yeah, to do yeah. with like this real, the real shit that's happening in the world. Yeah. Well, they, they often people, you know, people are very confused about Pink Floyd because during what, you'll forgive me if I call them the golden years, which is after Sid went crazy and before I left, the work we were doing and I was the leader of the band, not just de facto, I just fucking was. I was just in control of everything, just about, and whatever. And we did, and all of, so all of that work is me expressing myself in a way. And it's, even politically, it's quite a solid body of work, working as it does, you know, through Dark Side of the Moon, and Wish You Were, and Animals, and, you know, and, and then, and, uh, and The Wall, and, and The Final Cut which is a huge part of it. And you can see it's a really interesting kind of pick. If you're interested in that kind of thing, a lot of them aren't. A lot of them have no fucking idea what any of it is about. And you go, well, okay. You've missed a lot then, but, you know, they like the, well, it was quite clear after I'd left and, and, um, and uh, Dave and Nick, and then they got Rick back in because it looked better. I know that's why they did. He told me that. I mean, Gilmore's told me that. Why'd you get Rick back in? You can't fucking stand him. Oh, it looks better. Oh, my God. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Though I could easily. You fucking, you don't have to push me far because it hurts me. I fucking hate it. I hate the hypocrisy of it all. I really enjoy it. But I won't go there. But, um... Anyway, let's not talk about them. No, Shit. I didn't even. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I went there on my own. <laughs> I, it's not in the same world, so I hate to even compare. But Sergio and I, you know, we've spent, fuck man, day in and day out with a group of people for many years during the anti-war movement. I'm talking day in, day out, sleeping on couches, sleeping on floors, traveling around the country, trying to organize at union halls, trying to organize at college campuses all over the fucking place, like brothers and sisters, no different than when we were in the military. And after a couple of disagreements, I mean, some of these people are people I no longer talk to after spending every waking hour with them for almost a decade. And uh, it still breaks my heart. Um, you know, it still breaks my heart. Um, so yeah, no, I, there's no need to get into that. But it did. Yeah. The, the Yeah, but Vinny. Yeah. The principle stays the same if you if you take neil postgate or whatever or anybody who's ever said those things about amusing ourselves to death or whatever it might be and and you come back always to what is important well if the arguments are about walking with love and grace there is no fucking argument there, once you've defined what you do to that it's a bit like in public conversations now, I always come back to the fact that I stand on this tiny little piece of stone and on it, it says Paris 1948, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I, there's, not, there's no room to write down, there are 30 articles. If we abided by them all, none of this fucking bullshit would be happening. That's all we have to do is just go, yeah, we've accepted that. Now let's do it. None of this happens. Once you do that, all the whole nightmare goes away. 
Well, love and grace is a bit like that. Walk with love and grace, you know. And if you do that, or if you even if you try to, you sort of can't go wrong. Yeah. I don't know what that's got to do with you falling out with your friends, but I suspect it has something to do with it. It does. It does. Why did we get involved to begin with? All of us came back damaged veterans from a fucked up war who wanted to prevent further damage. And that's why we did what we did. So I think if we keep that in mind and keep a little a level of humility, I hope at some point that, you know, things can be forgiven and that we can move on. And what I've said in the past, you know, I've met Iraqi refugees over the years um, and some of them have walked right up to me and given me a hug with tears in their eyes. And they've told me, I forgive you uh, for what you did to my to my people. I forgive the, you know what you and your brothers did in your, your platoon. And my thinking on that has always been if the Iraqi people can forgive me for participating in what I forget what I participated in, then fuck you should whoever it is I wronged in this world, uh, they should be able to forgive as well. That's the way I look at it. Uh, I've yeah. never done anything as bad as what we did to the people over there. And if those people can forgive us, then I don't know what kind of transgression is unforgivable, you know? I know. There's a level of humility and grace uh, that they walk with and that they live with that I try and keep that. It keeps me in line, my perspective in line. Uh, I'm sure some, maybe somewhat for yourself, like your veteran friend, you know, yeah, whenever I feel like complaining or something, I think <clears throat> of the people I know who've, who are dealing with, you know, far One worse. of them. One of my veteran friends, he's called Greg Galeazzi. Um, he was actually an officer. Uh, he went to Iraq, deployed to Iraq. You know why he went? I mean, it's fucking unbelievable. But I, I absolutely believe him that this was his motivation. He thought that if he got a commission in the Marines and went to Iraq, that he could keep his men under control so they wouldn't commit some of the atrocities that he had seen happening. He thought, fuck me, I have to get out there to get these guys to play by the rules. Right. Which is pretty fucking amazing, A, that he was that um, moral and, yeah. and strong, but B, that he also thought that he could, if you right. see what I mean. Wow. I, yeah. I don't know if I've ever even heard a story like that before. Well, he you can ask him about it. He, he, he I invite, he was a good guitar player. He was at the Christmas dinner that um, I told you about with those guys from Walter Reed. And um, I'd never met him before. He was new. He, he'd only just, but so he, he never played with us at, um, at the Beacon or it, we played at, Madison Square Garden, the last one we did together in the theatre upstairs there, which is about 6,000 So, But he did play with us and Music Heals. And I invited him to play the beginning of Shine On You Crazy Diamond at Desert Trip in 2000 and whenever it was that I did Desert, 2016, I think, was where the show's at Desert Trip, which was pretty amazing. And, I was, and he did it too, and he played it for, he, he was absolutely brilliant. He played it beautifully. And I had long conversations with him because I wanted to tell the story about Mr. S. Cohen, who I won't bring up again. Uh, well, and and, he, and he, I asked him and he said, I'd much rather you didn't, <laughs> and which is fine. And I went, okay, bro, I got it. I won't, you know. Yeah. But 
I did read a letter out, um, and I read I read I read a poem out when I was invited just after I'd invited Greg onto the stage to play his bit. And it, and it was um, a sort of gift to John Prine, whose birthday it was that day. And uh, interestingly enough, in that poem that I read out, it talks about um, bloody toes peep, so something dusty toes peep bloody from the garment hem and something. And, and whenever I read those lines that I wrote about Iraq and about um the war and the american invasion and the death and fallujah and all of that stuff i'm i'm reminded of it um and and with one there was one particular clip i saw before it was censored because it was on cnn or something i saw this one clip and it's of some guys in a house in going into a house in fallujah and one of them says the other one this one's still alive bang not anymore is not and you could yeah and it disappeared that i never saw that clip again it was gone because somebody somebody went wait you're not don't you that no those those were the sort of things that sergio and i testified to congress about back in 2008 so in 2008 sergio and i testified to congress about rules of engagement uh, the killing of innocent civilians, torture, and the mutilation of dead bodies because a lot of the Marines we were with were playing and mutilating the dead bodies and then taking pictures and videos of them and then sending them back home. So those were the things that we testified to Congress about, and I know exactly what video you're referring to. Uh, and right. now what people are learning around the world is that it's not, you know, you see it with IDF forces. You see it with Australian Defense Forces. You see all these videos are coming out that the same tactics, the same brutalities, they're not just being committed by U.S. troops, but all of these troops. And not only that, but that's been the case in, in so-called counterinsurgency wars forever. Uh, from the yeah. Falklands to Malaysia to Vietnam to Cambodia, it is the same story across the board. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you channel some of those, the, the memories and thoughts you have about veterans in war one of the one of my favorite things that you've come out with uh, was the adaption of Igor Stravinsky's uh, The Soldier's Tale. I thought mm -hmm. that was just fucking phenomenal. I could listen to it over and over again. Uh, and the fact that you play all the you narrate all the different parts. It was it was awesome. It was, uh, in my opinion, one of my favorite things. Well, and thank you. I, yeah, I'm wondering, are those to, to keep telling these stories, to revisit these stories of war? Uh, beyond it just being a responsibility for you, do you, is this something that bothers you to keep bringing this up? Is this something that you, like, do you find it as something that provides you with energy and momentum? You have still something to say about war, still something to say about these experiences? Or is it, does it take a little piece of you to do, to do things like that? Well, it's, it's so funny you should bring up the Stravinsky, the soldier's tale, because I cannot remember it occurring to me for even a single second that it was about war. If you see what I mean, yeah. it was like, hey, Roger, what some friends of mine here, you know, in, in Bridgehampton on Long Island, they have a festival, they have a chamber music festival every year. We were wondering where there's this Stravinsky piece, and, and it's been done by lots of people over the years, and so it was written for actors and dancers and blah, 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 blah. But it's possible, just possible, to do it just with a narrator. 
and whatever. We, so when the world showed me it, you know, I didn't know it. I'd never heard of it. And they showed me it. And I was sucked into it, not so much because of its anti-war message per se, because it's um, it's more about the power that the devil has over us and magic than it is about what we're talking about, which is community and love and um, the political nature interwoven with the human nature of our struggle to nudge the world that we live in into a place where our brothers and sisters get a better crack of the whip and a better chance to experience joy. So, so what appealed to me about the soldier's tale was that, it, that was that the text was so badly written. I wanted to rewrite it. And I, and I did, I rewrote a lot of it. And at the end, in, in the middle of the uh, third act, there's a scene in it called the, the Pity Something D'Abord, which is quite a long instrumental piece that had no text. And I wrote 30 or 40 lines of text and put them over it. And so when I'd finished, and they said, you can't do that. I mean, at the beginning, these lovely people that who are very steeped in classical music said, you can't alter one full stop. It's Stravinsky. Are you crazy? And yeah, and I, you know, and whatever. But at the end, but by the end of it, I covered one whole thing with text that's not there. Stravinsky's been fucking dead for four years, you know, and whatever. Can't do, and I did it, and eventually it went off. Um, to this foundation, which is run by his family, the family and the family listened to it. And they wrote back, they said, we love this. This is so good. Thank you. And that is, it was just like, ah, because it is good. And the players that I play, worked with, you know, sort of led by Colin Jacobson, who's the fiddle player on it. And they were lovely people. And it's only a septet. It's only a seven-piece band, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad you like it. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I wanted you to do more of those. I'm like, this. you've got a natural talent for doing the different characters. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I would. I mean, I happily would. Um, this memoir that I'm, that I'm uh, working on now, when I've finished it, I will definitely read it for an audio book. Because there's great. a lot of room in there for different accents and things. I was going to ask you if you're going to if you're going to eventually write a memoir to get all of this down. I'm, I'm right in the middle of it now. We do a bit, part 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 of the um, positive of COVID lockdown has been that I've had a lot more time in this house with you know no golf course to go to, nothing to do, nothing to whatever whatever, and I go wow, how cool. I've got the whole day. I haven't got any Zooms or this or that or the other. I can go back and write. And I just lie down in the library on the sofa with my laptop and go, now, where was I? What shall I write? And I go to someone and I go, oh, yeah. And I just start writing. And I've discovered that I'm a writer, which is fucking amazing. You suddenly discover. I mean, I've written short stories, quite a lot of them. So I knew I, knew I could write, but 
I had no idea that I could write thousands of words a day without pausing for breath. And that when I read it back, it made me chuckle or it made me think or it made me feel something or it made me, you know, whatever. But I can, which is good news. <laughs> good news for all of us. Is there a... How much has that changed over the years, Roger? Like today, I know it's COVID, so it's way different than what it would normally be. But how have your like writing habits changed over the years? Are you the type of person who's like 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's when I write. Or is it when it comes, I sit down and I write? It has always in the past. It's been when, when it comes or when I get. I've often described to people about songwriting. Well, sometimes I get this pregnant feeling that there's maybe something struggling to get out. Or, and then I might, I'll might i sit down at the piano or the guitar sometimes or whatever or something and and it'll either come out or it won't. But no, there's never any question of sitting down in the morning at that time. Very recently, because of COVID now, sometimes I've, you know, early in the morning, if I wake up early and it's like seven o'clock in the morning, which is, I love, you know, and the sun's just coming up and I'm, breathe in the air and then I think well what should I do now well it's quiet just all right and so if it hadn't been for COVID the TNAD this is not a drill tour would have started on July the 9th 2020 in Pittsburgh and it would have all been over last Christmas do you do you still enjoy it? Do you still get pumped for a big tour like this? All well, I'm sure I will once I get into it. Obviously, it would have been a huge amount of very, very, very difficult, very, very concentrated, very, very hard work crammed into a tiny short of time, which is what it's usually like. And we would get to the dress rehearsals or where in the Izod Center or whatever and build a thing and nothing would work and then we'd do it again and then we'd figure out, I'll change that, do this, that. <laughs> and, and eventually we would arrive like we did in Toronto on September the 12th in, on, no, October the 9th in 2010 with the first wall show. There it is. Oh, fucking hell. You know, and it took us another two years to get it kind of vaguely right and then we went outdoors into stadiums and got it even right and we finished on the 13th of september 2013 three years later and you go (laughs) you know but it's a huge amount of effort and engagement so the fact that covid came oh you can't go on tour oh in a way oh well that means we can get tinad right and i'm working on it every day i work on tinad as well keep working and working and working on how's it going to work how does the show work i've written it all out like a film script in final draft because i've written a whole bunch of cinema scenes in it that in that come up during the show in something called the bar and 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 for actors so it's going to be it won't be like any rock and roll show that anybody's seen are there shows that still inspire you today? Are there artists out there that you see today that you go, man, that's there's somebody or there's something that I'd like to use or this is something that makes me think? Um, I can't think of anything. But that's not to say that they don't exist because just occasionally I see something where there's a glimmer of, wow, that's interesting or that's beautiful or that's something or other, but there's nothing... No, nothing that really 
really kind of gets to me, particularly in my arena. And that may sound, you know, daft, but it, I'm I'm not really interested in, you know, you, what, you don't have to remember this, Vidi, because you're too fucking young. But what happened was that we started doing big shows in big in big arenas and then stadiums back in the Dark Side of the Moon, the shows were still little and we were still playing theatres and little places and things. After that, when it got bigger, I went, this is, we, you can't just sit on a stage and, and then just have more and more lights. We, we need ideas. We need ideas. That's where all the films and inflatables, all the stuff that I developed with my team of people like Mark Fisher and Jonathan Park and the people who built the inflatables and things like that, but none of them had anything to do with Pink Floyd. Nobody else in Pink Floyd had anything to do with any of that ever. That's my work. And I did that. It was one of the, I wrote almost all the songs, most of the music and did that. And that's what I did. That was my, that was sort of a life's work, you know, and I loved it. And of course, you know, famously, it, I, I don't know if I've even written this bit yet, but famously, when we did The Wall, which we did in the beginning of 1980, in New York, in Nassau Coliseum, Mick came, Mick Jagger came to one of the shows in Nassau Coliseum. And when it was over, he came backstage and he walked in back and we're all like hanging out in some, you know, elegant bar area or whatever and blah, 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 blah. And he came in and he was very single-minded because Mick is very single-minded. And he went, uh, yeah, you know, um, who done all the design on that? You know, like he does. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and somebody was standing there next to him and pointed at Jerry Scarf, who did all the animation, friend of mine. Those, those amazing war eagles and frightened ones and all that that's in the movie, but that was in the show as well. And Jerry happened to be sitting on a couch next to Nick Mason, my mate, the drummer. <laughs> and Mick got it wrong and thought he was pointing to Nick. <laughs> so he went over and went, Hello, great show. You know, I, I gather you've done all the, you know, design and that. And, uh, uh, and uh, and Nick, of course, would he would never miss an opportunity. Well, yes, I did actually. You know, bloody <laughs> hard work. And he talked to him for fucking hours about how it was, how he'd written it all and done it all. <laughs> and and um, eventually, Mick caught on to. He, he carried on rooting around and finally discovered Mark Fisher. Who had actually Mark Fisher and Jonathan Park did all the engineering design and architectural design for uh, for the building and designed all the cardboard bricks and all the hydraulic lifts and the mechanics of how everything worked and blah blah. And Jerry, of course, did all the animation. And blah 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 blah. So they were they were my main collaborators. And the Stones, they never got hold of Jerry, but Mark Fisher did all their shows from then on. And that suddenly the Stone shows were all inflatables and this and that and the other and blah, 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 blah. They just, they didn't steal anything. They just went, fucking hell, that's good. We'll do that. Yeah. And then everybody did it. 
I was going to say everybody copied off of what you created because now all the shows have got the LED screens and all the props. But I mean, there was there was nothing like that really in American. No, there wasn't. There wasn't. But anyway, that is that's just what there. You know, we all like work, right? Work is its own reward. That work is such fun if you're given the opportunity to do something fun rather than making coca-cola bottles in a fucking factory for nothing yeah that's why we have to fight i mean we've got so many people where we live roger we're in and i'm sure you're aware because there's different parts of england same thing but we've met so many fucking creative people over the years who are just trapped man i mean you know they got 10 bucks in their savings account they got to go to three different jobs they got kids they got this they got that maybe their cars broke down they can't get to the doctor whatever it is but man still some of the most thoughtful creative and we get the opportunity Sergio and I Sergio's a documentary filmmaker as well so he gets to travel around the world he's traveled to all different continents talking with different groups and people and fuck man you come back here and you meet people who have ideas and create things that are just as interesting as anyone else you'll meet anywhere else, but they'll never have a chance to get it or put it out uh, because they're fucking trapped within the system. So for me, it's like as much as us fighting back is the right thing to do, it's the moral thing to do. If we can do this effectively, the kind of human potential that we can unlock if we can get people off of this, you know, the straitjacket that is this capitalist system and empire and all of this, I can't imagine the amount of creativity. I mean, do you think the same thing? Like if you had, you know what I mean? If you had like tens of millions of Americans who had the the capacity, no. it would be no, unbelievable. No, I don't think like that. No? But I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. It's, it's a kind of interesting idea. But my experience has been, though, even with the people who are free to decide to do whatever it is that they want to do, it is no surprise to me that so many people go, how does he do that? Or how did they do that? Or, because uh, I am. When somebody does something that blows my fucking socks off, I, I go, wow, how did they do that? That's amazing that they can do that, you know. If, when John Prine writes Donald and Lydia, for instance, um. I don't think that there's hundreds of thousands of people who are enslaved by capitalism who could do that, but don't because they're enslaved by capitalism. I just think, fuck me, how did he do that? That is so beautiful. I don't think that the next Dostoevsky, that there's one on every street. And if only they weren't having to go to a boring job, they'd all be writing, you know, one piece or... I don't. I don't. I I do think that people who do that work are special. But but, um, that's not to say but that's not to say that we can't all express our own um, creativity in all kinds of ways that don't exhibit as something that millions of people will go fucking hell. That's great. Right, right, Imagine right. this, oh, you know, what a great song. And it is. But I don't, but if, if, if you actually, if you listen, like I do with, uh, people often send me, send me songs, they send me shit they've written and stuff. They do. And most of it is pretty mediocre because it's not easy, you know. 
so I don't know about your theory that, that it would all explode. No, in- you're probably right. I was trying to be positive, but you're probably fucking right. I'm just trying to give like the positive, like, hey, you know, if we. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't really matter. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you're in a room and one bloke's funny, it's cool that the rest of us sit and laugh. Yeah. But he's the comic. And some people are really, really good at it, you know. And But most of us aren't. Right. The number of people I know who hear really, really good jokes. I've had people telling me jokes I told them and they've forgotten that I told them the <laughs> joke. And when they tell me the joke back, they completely, they get it completely wrong. <laughs> they have no fucking idea why it was funny or what was good about it. You know, even down to getting the punchline completely wrong. Right. <laughs> Right. No, no. So, you, you said something earlier that I was going to push back on because I thought you sounded positive and you had said that we were in the the sort of ashes of the neoliberal period. And I thought, well, we are. I thought, wow. That's because we're all fucking dying because there are those people with $10 in there. But most of them, it's not in a savings account. No, they haven't even got it. They owe it to somebody and they got $2 in their pocket. And they can't come up with the money to pay that next, pay the rent at the end of the month for the apartment. They're nearly they're they're like ten bucks from fucking homelessness, sleeping on a street corner or in the back of a car. Breaks my fucking heart. That that those are the ashes from which we need to rise, Phoenix. Like we need to rise, Phoenix. Like to a place where we all go to bed in a, we all go to sleep in a warm bed at night. And if there's a if we're homeless, if there's a common room where we can talk to another human being, so we're not miserably lonely as well, well, then that that would be a start. And if we and if we were sick, if we could get fucking health care, and if we have kids, if they could be educated, if they could go somewhere to a school and do really interesting things and 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 have somebody there, an older person show, hey, let me show you this. And them go, bloody hell, I didn't know about that. You know, yeah, yeah, it's a dinosaur. People study them, you know. It's called paleontology. Did you know we're all from Africa? We're we're only 220,000 years old. Every human being, no, we're not. You know, billions of us were Chinese. No, but we're all from Africa. The Chinese are all from Africa. That's right. How'd you make that out? And you just tell them that. And they go, wow, that's really interesting. Mind you, none of us knew that until we unraveled the human genome. And that was only 20 or 30 years ago. So nobody knew until Francis Crick did the work in Cambridge and discovered DNA. We had no fucking idea how anything worked. So we do live in exciting times and the knowledge is there, but they don't want us to share it with anybody. They want, don't want the knowledge to be shared. They only want the knowledge to go to them so they and their pals in Big Pharma can make money out of anything that anybody discovers. They don't, they don't the, the idea that there is something noble about our voyage into the future across this unknown sea of ignorance to discover more and more and more and to illuminate more of whatever the great spirit might be, if such a thing exists in the 
potential that carbon atoms have for metaphysics, which none of us understand, and which is ferociously obscured by all this fucking Judeo-Christian bullshit, and has been for the last several thousand years, I don't know. But it is beautiful, and it is there, and it is there for us to allow our children to study it and to go, wow, how cool is that? Do you care about any of these labels, Roger? Do you call yourself a socialist? Or do do you think any of that matters at this point? Do you think there's any use in using those terms? Well, only if they describe something uh, useful. I would be happy to be called a socialist if I I thought that that uh, adjective was appended to people who cared about community and about social welfare. So if a socialist is somebody who believes in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a socialist document, because it believes in our right to food and shelter and health care and life and liberty, well, then, yes, I am, because that's what I believe in. So absolutely. And, and I do... Can you believe in Marxism? Well, it's not its not really an ideology, but it is a, a description of economic systems that has a great deal of truth in it. Do I believe that most of my brothers and sisters in the world are either actual slaves or wage slaves? Yes, I do. Do I believe they should be freed from those bonds? Yes, I do. Don't know what that makes me, but whatever it makes me, if there is if there is a noun to describe such a person, yeah, I, d- I don't mind being called it, you know. And they would say, well, you're an idealist, or you know, or you're a whatever. There, there are there are derogatory words for people who believe in something that people who believe in the profit motive would call utopian fantasies, right? You know. But you would still you would still speak out even if we had a socialist government. I have the feeling that you would be a dissident regardless of who is in power. I certainly would if it started to get over bureaucratic and and started leaning towards Stalinism, which you can describe. I mean, Stalin was a malign enough influence on the lives of enough people that we can use his name to describe a particular brand of authoritarianism. But we just shouldn't. We shouldn't um, run away with uh, misapprehension that his brand of authoritarianism is any more despicable, or dangerous, or inhuman, or disgusting as the Koch brothers, because it's not. Yeah, more. I they're, totally they're the same animal. I totally agree. I uh, I feel like I've already been perhaps a bit rude by taking enough of your time today. Um, I wanted to just end by asking you if you can plug any kind of organizations, movements, anything that you want people to check out that you think is worthwhile right now that you want people to support or look into. uh, Please, please let us know. Um, Well, right now, BDS is hugely important because, and and I support as much as I can, Palestine Legal. So I'm, I'm, 
I will home in on that very narrow uh, target for my passion and my love and my ire. Um, because we can home in on it now because nobody with a IQ above room temperature is really prepared to argue anymore that Israel is not an apartheid state. It is. And we made a big fuss in the 70s, 80s and 90s about South Africa, which was another not quite as bad apartheid state, but it was bad and it were. And we, the people of the world, we, the peoples of the world, brought it down. And we did it by using boycott and divestment and sanctions and also sport. I think it's very important that we stop playing sport with Israel that we don't let them into the Olympics, that we wrote, refuse to play soccer against, that will really get them where they feel it. Because at the moment, they don't feel any of it. They're getting all, they're getting $3 billion a year or whatever it is, you know, from the United States. They're propped up hugely. They're very industrious. They have good industries going. They sell weapons all over the world as hard and fast as they can. And but, well, we know all of these things. So they're not hurting at all. You stop playing soccer with them and then that will hurt them. And I want them to wake up and smell the roses. I want them to smell the olive trees that the Palestinian people would be growing and smell the olives that the Palestinians would be growing and, and putting in bottles and selling all over the world if the Israelis weren't bulldozing their uh, thousands and thousands of years old olive trees into firewood all day every day it's disgusting and people are waking up to it so that i'll point at that please and i would say that to my community in rock and roll i know it's a bit scary oh and don't don't get me started <laughs> that's the end of your career they've told me that ever since i got involved which was it wasn't that long ago it was 2006 so that's only 15 years, but for 15 years, I've been being told every single day, that's it, your career's over. Well, you're right. You won't find you won't find Roger Waters' The Wall or Us and Them on Netflix or Hulu or this or that or the other because I'm banned from them. They don't say so. They say, oh, we love it. And then the next day they say, you know what? It's not really quite right for us. So it's gone upstairs and the board have said, no, he's banned. He's blacklisted. We are going to destroy him. Well, you can't. My back is broader than that, but I'm lucky. But there's a lot of my friends in rock and roll who should be standing up to them as well. Unless they don't believe in human rights. It's just that one small platform that I stand on. I would invite all my comrades in rock and roll or music business in general come and stand on this little platform with me, along with me and, you know, Elvis Costello and there is, and Lauren Hill. And there are many others. I'm not saying I'm on my own. There are many others and I'm very bad at names. So I can't remember all, but there are thousands and thousands of you who go and look the other way. Well, you, you know, sometimes to use the, some of the uh, Ju Judeo, Christian stories, it's easier to pass by on the other street, but it brings you nothing in the end. 
you must always cross over and help the guy who needs help on the other side of the street. Always. That's all I have to say. There's no better way to end it. Fuck, man. That Roger, I know you didn't have to do this our little small-ass program out here in Michigan City, Indiana, so I can't tell you how much it means to me. No, well, it's good, bro. To both I'll, of us. So again, you know, just, just give me a chance to get my voice back. Yeah, no, and I'm sorry for taking too much of your time. I, I hope that wasn't... Listen, uh, don't be silly. At any point during the whole thing, I can say, good God, is that the time? And disappear. <laughs> and you would have been very nice and said, yeah, that's all right. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you and to whoever else is watching this, you know. I, li- I like having a platform. And and and, and, and as, I'll tell you something else as well. It's nice for me to be on a Zoom thing where I'm talking to one person three is maximum i get involved sometimes in zoom things now and i try please don't make it more than four people yeah and sometimes you get six or somebody and i go this is fucking crazy you sit there you know and yeah. you try not to interrupt people because you're not in the same room and you don't know them and so you can't actually have a conversation really and 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 most of the time most of the people on the panel are sitting trying to remember what everybody else has said before it's their time again to respond. So you never get a chance for any, you know, of those special moments that you can get in a conversation where you're bouncing off from another human being. Anyway. Yeah. No, and it's tough because somebody like you, Roger, you've been interviewed so many times that I was sitting here before today and I'm like, I don't know. What can we talk about that? I don't bore the shit out of this guy. I'm like, he's been asked everything a million times. I didn't want to ask you anything about Pink Floyd. I didn't want to ask you anything about like any of the shit that I've seen you in the past go, Hey, look, I'm, you know, so I appreciate it. All right. Well, it's been fun, Vinny. Yeah. And say, so, thanks, Sergio. Here, wait, I'll let him come around. He'll want to say hi to you. Let's on. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.